So buckle up for this crazy and exciting ride. I'll be talking all things tits, bits, spew and poo. Alright, let's get started. In today's episode, I speak with Tani Modi about her motherhood journey, in particular her battle with hyperemesis gravidarum and the significant impact that this had on her mental health. After suffering from hyperemesis in her first pregnancy, Tani knew there was potential for it to occur again when she fell pregnant next. And she was exactly right, except this time it was only so much worse. Tani dives deep into this traumatic time of her life, discussing some of her darkest days, including suffering from insomnia, being admitted into the perinatal mental health unit, commencing psychiatric drugs whilst pregnant, and how she survived her pregnancy. This episode is a real eye-opener on some of the impacts that hyperemesis can have, not only on our physical health, but also emotional health. So if you are someone who might need some additional support, please reach out to some incredible resources such as Panda, Hyperemesis Australia and Beyond Blue. Please welcome Tani. Hello everyone and welcome back to Midi the Podcast. Today I'm joined by the lovely Tani Modi. So Tani, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I am, my name's Tani Motti. I am 34. Um, I have got a husband who is working from home in there right now. I've told him to put his headphones in and not listen to me. And, <laughs> and yeah. a six-year-old uh, boy and my newest bubby, little Ziggy. And I work in um, essentially health promotion. I am, my job's a little bit complex to explain, but I'm basically a project manager, but I work in um, on a chronic disease campaign, designing and developing behavior change interventions, essentially, in a nutshell. Love it. Always, I always love hearing what people do. Yeah. I find it so fascinating, but that sounds very complex and I'm sure that I will not understand it uh, to its extent, but sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it is. I do absolutely passionate about my work and love my job. Very lucky. Well, that's amazing to hear. It makes all the difference. Um, but Tani, I'm so grateful for you to come on today because we're going to be touching on your motherhood journey, in particular your journey with mental health and sort of how you navigated that during your pregnancies because you're going to highlight today that there's definitely a lack of that out there for women to access and feel not as alone. So I'm so grateful for you being so brave and real and honest and sharing with my listeners a bit about your story because it's never easy talking about it. And I'm just so grateful that you are able to do that with me today. Thank you. Thank you. So let's go back to the beginning. You obviously have a six-year-old child too. So do you want to share a little bit about how your motherhood journey went with him to begin with? 
Yeah, so um, so I've had two back-to-back HG pregnancies. So my pregnancy with Remy was another HG pregnancy, um, which was pretty challenging. Getting knocked over by that in the first the first time, not really understanding what was normal, um, and so it was a pretty late diagnosis mm. with that. And I wasn't on any medication or anything like that. It kind of pro- went through to kind of twenty five weeks, and then was normal um but from there I kind of had you know had him I think the sleep deprivation hits you like a ton of bricks the first time around you kind of Mm -hmm. it's just such a shock to the system you kind of don't know how to cope with that so we had um you know a pretty severe sleep deprivation journey with him um but yeah I think ultimately my my first kind of journey through motherhood was really just some hardcore lessons in learning how to surrender and um and kind of drop the Mm. control and um yeah I guess also figuring out how to navigate and work as a team with my partner in a or my husband actually in a space that we'd kind of never been in before um but yeah I feel lucky we've got a pretty Mm. large age gap between the two so um that was predominantly because of the hyperemesis we weren't sure if I could go through that again um Mm. and also because you know work life career all those kinds of things so pretty lucky to have had that kind of five and a half years with Remy on his own as a single child yeah and for people listening that are like what is HG we're talking about hyperemesis gravidarum which is um a very debilitating condition and it occurs in pregnancy it's not your typical morning sickness it's feeling nauseous um vomiting consistently every day um predominantly through your entire pregnancy it's not just like okay get through that first trimester and you'll be right it is if anyone knows anyone that's gone through it it is absolutely debilitating and really really tough for any woman that experiences that so Tani, did you know that? Did you know much about hyperemesis before you had it, or were you a bit naive in the fact that, um, you know, it probably wasn't going to happen to you? Yeah, I think you just never really think that those kinds of things are going to happen to you. It's just not in the kind of realm of what you're discussing when you're planning to have your first mm-hmm. child or your first pregnancy. You're not thinking, oh, yeah. but what if I get hyperemesis? And so it was, you know, a real shock to the system. And I was pretty, I was violently unwell from, you know, probably three weeks. And we were actually overseas at the time. I was in Japan and we had to change our flights mm-hmm. and fly home because I couldn't um, really seek any medical care or, um, we didn't know what was happening. It was oh just so, yeah, so bad. And, um, you know, it, yeah, we just kind of weren't really aware of what was happening. I kind of felt that it was outside of normal, um, you know, to not be able to work, to not be able to stomach water, to not be able to eat any food whatsoever. And I think, um, yeah, in that pregnancy, I, I stayed at like 49 kilos until I was like probably five, six months pregnant. So it was pretty bad. Um, and yeah, so you kind of, I didn't really know about it. It wasn't until I was about 19 weeks and I kind of said to the obstetrician, I think I've got hyperemesis. Like I I realize it's actually not normal to not be able to go to work and do all of these Mm. things. And he said, yeah, it's not, it's not normal. And I think it had kind of flown under the radar before then because I was so excited every time I went to an obstetrician appointment, it was like the one time I'd leave the house 
that I'd get myself all dressed up and excited to kind of see scans of my baby. And that kind of, I think, came through with me exerting all of my energy into those appointments. And so it kind of flew under the radar because I couldn't articulate the severity because I didn't know that it wasn't normal, essentially. Mm, Yeah. And so hard for your first pregnancy too, because that excitement is almost diminished a little bit because you're crippled with feeling nauseous and just severely unwell. It is so hard and I can't tell you how many women like when I do their booking appointments and we talk about how they've been feeling and they say they've been nauseous and I'm like, okay, tell me a little bit about this nausea. Is it just, you know, coming and going? Can you still eat and drink? And I just remember vividly this one woman who she was like, I can't eat, I can't drink. Like this is the first time that I've left the house. Yeah. And I was like, and how are you feeling? And she just burst into tears and was like, I just can't do it anymore. And I was like, okay, this isn't normal. You shouldn't have to keep going on like this. And she was like, what? And I was like, I think you have hyperemesis and we need to now put some actions into place. So definitely so hard for women, especially when you're waiting for that pregnancy glow and it's not really there. Yeah. And I think also like, I guess I was a little bit younger at the time. I was in my late twenties. I don't remember. I don't remember how old, but, um, you know, whatever now, minus six, <laughs> minus six and a half or seven. It's too hard. I think yeah, it's, it's 20, 28. I'm going like to say that. 28. Yeah, um, so I think also like not a lot of people I knew had babies yet. Now all of my friends have many, many children. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was just, I was kind of the first person I knew to go through something so severe. And um, yeah, it was, you know, similar to that. Like I, I, basically just laid on the couch all day long I couldn't function I couldn't eat my husband couldn't eat in the house or talk about food nobody could have a conversation with me about anything um I couldn't even watch tv all I could watch was kids cartoons because there was no mention of food or no realistic looking anything that would spark like a memory or a sense of smell or um you know anything like that and even up until even up until probably like two years ago any mention of New Zealand or Japan which is where we were when I started getting sick would make me feel sick um it was just yeah I couldn't is you just can't even articulate how how bad it is it's like the worst gastro you've ever experienced mixed with the worst hangover you've ever experienced and then with starvation like if you've got no access to food and that was actually another thing because I was so dehydrated I got a kidney stone in that pregnancy Um, but I was so unwell that I couldn't fathom standing upright and going to hospital. So I basically, um, just stayed home and let it pass. And then, then after that had the tests and yeah, it was really bad. My goodness. My, like, I'm just in shock because it's just, it's so awful. It really is. And, oh, I'm just so sorry that you went through that. And it's just a massive journey that you've been on from six years ago um, and then obviously it would have taken so much strength and courage to think about having another child because we know that there's so many women that are just like who have suffered from high premises that are just like I'm never doing that again because I actually for my own mental health and well-being I cannot do it how yeah. did you sort of decide that okay I was ready to maybe try again I think like there was just this biological underlying urge where I just couldn't suppress that I desperately needed a sibling for my son. I just couldn't, I just, that was just all I had in my mind, just this vision that I couldn't 
not give him a sibling. And I'd kind of thought that, you know, I'd done so much research. I'd had a look at like the Hyperemesis Australia, I think it's called organization. And I'd looked at the data, you know, I worked with a bit of research in my job. And so I had really like I'd heavily researched and the stats weren't good. It was, you know, like an 80% chance of reoccurrence. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, maybe it was just a one-off like I don't know at that point I didn't know that I think there's some emerging research now that's demonstrating that it's actually a genetic correlation um with certain gene codes that Mm. I might have or maybe maybe I don't have that I don't know but um yeah it was you know I'd done the research I'd had a look into what my chances were of having it again um you know it was a really tricky time to navigate with my husband as well because he was highly traumatized from um, watching, you know, yeah. being a helpless kind of bystander, watching me go through that and kind of also the journey po- after that as well where, you know, my son didn't sleep and I, I think I probably had a bit of undiagnosed postpartum anxiety. So it was just a bit of a journey. It was really hard to kind of agree to potentially go through that again and ultimately I convinced myself that it wouldn't be as bad second time around because I knew what to expect so I was heading in there expecting the absolute dark depths of the worst thing you could experience so anything better than that would be okay um and then also yeah that underlying urge that I needed to have a sibling for Remy and I just knew that I would regret that forever Um, And I just also convinced myself, I guess, that I had the tools and systems in place. And luckily at that time it was in COVID. So I was working from home basically 100% of the time. So I just kind of convinced myself that it was all going to be okay. So which obviously wasn't, but yeah. Well, that certainly just highlights like the strength in your personality because that is certainly not an easy decision to come by. And especially like as a couple, like you were saying, your husband, he probably was experiencing some sort of trauma and feeling hopeless, not being going to help you yet. Then you're going to be put in a position again where most likely you're probably going to have to do it all again. Like it just, it would be so hard because I feel like you were battling with this guilt of if I don't do it, then like you said, I'm going to regret it or is this my fault? Like I'm sure there was a lot of feelings where you're being so hard on yourself to not if you didn't have another baby. Yeah, and I think like that age gap was really widening and, um, you know, there were so many reasons for that, the potential recurrence of the HD pregnancy. You know, I was doing a master's and things like that in between as well. And, um, yeah, it just kind of was Mm. getting to a point where it was kind of like now or not at all and how could I possibly come to terms with that? Could I come to terms with it? And I kind of realised that there's no way that I could ever come to terms with not at least trying to have another baby again. So, yeah, it was, yeah, pretty difficult, Mm. difficult decision, difficult time and, yeah, required a lot of, kind of discussion and arguments and you know all sorts to kind of get to that agreement agreeance yeah I'm sure a lot of mixed emotions from the both of you um but then obviously you fell pregnant with baby Ziggy and once again you experienced hyperemesis how was it the second time around knowing that you there was already the potential that you were going to get it you sort of had prepared yourself for that how did that journey go 
So in the beginning, um, so I kind of, once again, started feeling sick pretty early on. But at this time around in the beginning, it felt like, wow, this is not as severe. Like from my first pregnancy, I was violently vomiting Mm. and retching, you know, hundreds of times a day. Whereas this, um, when I wasn't yet vomiting, I felt the really severe nausea, but I was able to, at this point, get a little bit of food in. Um, I was able to drink water. So I was starting to feel really positive. I was thinking like, if this happens, if it stays like this the Mm. whole way through, I can manage, I can manage. I kept trying to tell myself I can manage. But then, um, you know, kind of things just started to go a little bit more rapidly downhill. And I knew immediately, um, you know, this time around, I guess I knew what was normal and abnormal, um, how to articulate what was happening for me um and I kind of I went to the GP immediately and got a script for you know all the kind of anti-emetics mm. and anti-nausea medications I could and I, I really swiftly started those as kind of a preventative action because that was one of the things that was recommended on the Hypermesis Australia website was to kind of get in there early get it start get the medication started and if I didn't need it great mm. I could go off it um, so this time I, I kind of went to the doctor and yeah. I got the um, the scripts for ondansetron, metoclopramide, and also I was um, starting rest of it. And at that point I kind of started just to take it ad hoc, like if the nausea was so debilitating that I couldn't function, that I felt like I couldn't work, um, then I would take them. But it kind of started going, um, yeah, getting going a bit awry where I started not being able to eat, not, the vomiting was ramping up. I was starting to not be able to get out of bed, lightheaded, Mm. you know, all those kinds of things. And so um, once it kind of started going downhill, I I pretty consistently started taking the medication three, four hourly on rotation between the ondansetron, the metoclopramide um, throughout the day and the rest of it at night. Um, Because it kind of was every, you know, every every morning you wake up and it's, um, you know, every step, every movement, every possible thing that you would normally do Mm. like brushing your teeth showering dressing yourself is just you know a monumental mental challenge like moving my arms just felt like impossible um and so every day I kind of woke up and my biggest goal was I just need to get my son to school and that was all I was focused on like I'd be making his lunchbox and I'd be vomiting um just you know looking at the food smelling the food anything to do with um food yes I'd be like that was just my one main goal so I'd like wake up really groggy from the rest of it that I'd taken overnight to kind of um, reduce the vomiting in the morning my main goal would be to get him to school and I'd kind of get there try and avoid all the school mums um you know because I not only did I have I just could not hold a conversation and I had nothing positive to say which is really ultimately the complete opposite of who I am as a person so I just felt like these people don't know me you know I've got nothing positive to say all I have is negative thoughts negative words and um yes I kind of and I looked horrendous too like dark bags under my eyes I might be retching in the bushes at school like it was just you know a bit of a bit of a nightmare so yeah second time around so I was doing so it's actually like hard to I was just gonna say it's actually like hard to imagine and I feel like you know for me like even though I know this exists and I know what women go through we're still so naive in thinking that like that it's just morning sickness yeah um but just like to do the simplest of tasks was so hard for you yeah and 
my goodness, like what strength and courage that took to even get your little man to school. Yeah, it was it was dire. And I just remember like standing in the shower every day and just thinking and feeling like I just want it to reach a day where just this most simple thing doesn't feel hard. Like standing upright in the shower was just horrible. Getting my clothes on was horrible. Everything was just, you know, and you had to factor in then vomiting because we might be heading out the door and I might need to vomit somewhere anywhere so I would carry like the vomit bags with me in the car just in case um I basically carried those with me everywhere um so yeah that was kind of how that kind of looked and um so I would basically you know most days I'd kind of I'm still working at this point so most days I'd kind of swing through my medication cycle take my rest of it at night that would knock me out Um, feel a bit better in the morning, get the school Mm. run happening. And then I would kind of, you know, some days, some weeks, I would swing by the hospital on my way home because we have a little country hospital. So it's, I don't have to have big wait times or anything like that. So I would just kind of swing, be like, okay, it's bad. I'd swing by the hospital, spend an hour getting a drip, message my boss and say, I'm on the drip. I'll be an hour before I start come back, work from home and kind of, yeah, repeat, rinse and repeat, cycle through that medication try and survive the day um, and then, yeah, do it all over again. My goodness. Yeah. It is just awful, just awful. And then obviously this kept progressing and you found yourself needing to actually be admitted into the hospital. Can you talk us through a little bit about that and why that occurred? Yeah, so I guess um, one key thing that I felt this time and that I had a really lovely midwife uh, who spoke to me about, she said that healthy people don't consider going to hospital. So if you're considering going to hospital, you need to go. And I had those thoughts daily. Like I was like, I need the drip. I can't function. And I knew that the drip would make me feel better for at least two days. I'd be able to consume more food, get some calories in, get some nutrients in. Um, but yeah, so I would just kind of casually Mm. swing by the hospital every few weeks as I, as I kind of needed. Um, but yeah, so how that kind of hospitalization occurred was I was on all of these medications and there was one day I was in the hospital getting a drip and I, she said to me, how are you feeling? And I said, I feel horrible. I just can't sit still. I was like wriggling, shaking my legs. I honestly felt like I was like on a drug withdrawal or something. And so she was like, that's unusual. Mm. And I went home and kind of researched. I chatted to a friend who's a GP. um, And one of the things that came up is some of the medications I was on, if used long-term, could cause like restless leg syndrome, you know, a bunch of other things like that. So I thought, I've got restless legs. I need to get off these medications. And so I dropped the metoclopramide and the rest of it and everything just kind of, you know, that's kind of when the worst of things kind of started. So before then the hyperemesis was bad, but it was manageable. Like mentally I felt like I know this is going to be over. I know it's going to end, you know, previously it had ended like 26 weeks. I thought if I can just get through to then it'll be okay. But this was really different. So I went off those medications and started getting like this severe restless leg syndrome, like you know, nothing I can possibly articulate. I felt like jitters all through my body. I was um, feeling really distressed. And that kind of, as soon as I went off the medication, I was pacing all day long, trying to 
get some relief. So I was pacing for 22 hours a day, listening to earbuds with sleep stories in there, trying to um, make myself basically pass out standing up. And as soon as I felt any inkling of sleep, I would just kind of flop on the bed. And I kind of thought that's just like a bit of a withdrawal from going off the drugs. So by about like day three, day four, it was still going. And I, I'd, I'd gone to and from the hospital. Like I'd taken myself um, throughout this 10 day period where it, I had this severe, um, but I'll tell you it is soon. Uh, I'd taken myself to the hospital probably four times saying, I need relief. This is not normal. I need um, something to relax my muscles to stop this. I'm not sleeping now because I, all I can do is pace. Um, and they'd kind of just said, oh, yeah, it's a drug withdrawal. You'll, you know, you give it, you know, these next couple of weeks and you'll be fine. So day by day, I was just waiting, like, will it stop? Will it stop? And by this point, I was not having any sleep. I was feeling extremely distressed and I started to feel absolute hysteria. Um, you know, I basically was crying all day and night. I had to stop um, work for this period of time in the middle of a pretty intense and stressful period at work. Um, so mm. yeah, I was feeling really distressed. And so I, I then decided that, um, you know, it was, it was getting pretty dark. Like this is where I started having some pretty severe mental health, um, thoughts. I remember like pacing and hanging over the bed. Um, at this point, the hospital had given me some tamazepam, which is a benzo, um, yeah. You might be able to explain that better than me, but basically, yeah, yeah, you know, I wouldn't have thought great to take during pregnancy, but we were in the last clutching at straws there. Um, and I was kind of and sorry, how many tiny? How many weeks were you at that at this point? I think how I was many weeks about, gestation in your pregnancy? I think I was about fifteen weeks, maybe approximately that. Yeah, so you were still like, I have a decent chunk of my pregnancy left yeah and so I just remember hanging over the bed and feeling such distress and that I looked at my son and I just started feeling like he doesn't deserve to have a mum like this that can't be present can't engage can't do anything and so that's when I started having some pretty dark thoughts about um about my with my mental health and started to get a bit of like health anxiety thinking you know there'd be nothing in my life that had pushed me to the limit before of where I could psychologically not cope. And I was beat well and truly over and above that by that point. And so mm. I'd started to feel like if just health anxiety around, if I ever got anything like that with similar symptoms like MS or Parkinson's or anything like that, I thought I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, really stay on this earth is how I felt like, so I wasn't having suicidal thoughts, but it was along those lines of I can't be here for these people. Uh, they don't deserve this. So I decided to, at that point, I was calling the GP again and I kind of had a big chat about um, where I was at and they referred me to both um, our main uh, university hospital down the coast and also perinatal wellbeing. So I went to... Uh, school which is our big university hospital and I was so hysterical by that point I couldn't talk without crying I couldn't say hello I was just hyperventilating crying and so I think they basically admitted me based on hysteria at that point um, and at th first they thought that what I was mm. experiencing was dystonia 
which is which can occur with the metoclopramide usage. But um, later, once I had been in contact with um, perinatal wellbeing, the psychiatrist diagnosed it as akathisia. So yeah, that's how the, the hospitalization kind of came about. And when I got admitted, they immediately put me on more benzos. I think it was uh, temazepam again. And they also put me on mm. benzotropine, so the muscle relaxants to kind of stop the shaking. And that worked. But I, at that point, was so mentally, um, mentally distressed. My body, I couldn't stop shaking from just my nervous system being so overloaded that I begged them to keep me in hospital. I just, I wanted to be sedated at this point. I just couldn't bear to, to carry on. At that point... How was your partner going in all of this? Oh, poor Mark. So, I mean, he once again had to be the helpless bystander. But we had to kind of just divide and conquer and he had to focus on Remy's well-being and making sure that he was keeping things running for Remy and I just basically had to focus on survival. So at that point, that's kind of how we how we operated he would make sure that he kept um, lunch boxes school run all of those things happening and I made sure that if I was at hospital that was my focus to make sure that I was well and baby was well and that's kind of how we just divide and con- conquered that so yeah poor guy <laughs> mm. did you have much support from like your community like from friends around you um because like I just can't even imagine how tough that would have been for Mark and also of course you but seeing you in that position and also pacing for what 22 hours a day like he would have just been like you need to sleep but you just couldn't like you would have just been sort of changing as a person too and for someone who's seen you at your highest it's really hard to see you at your lowest Yeah, so at that point, yeah, I was really feeling like a bit of a shell of a human being, just so far from reality and who I was that I I was starting to really feel like, Mm. will I ever go back to normal? And that was kind of feeding into those mental health aspects where I felt like I was going to remain like this forever, mentally and physically. And so, yes, I did have really great support at that time, which is really fortunate. I have my mum actually lives at the back of our property. Um, and so she works full time, but she was here to check in every day. And during that period, it was actually at a point where I didn't feel safe being alone. And so there were probably five out of those 10 days where I had to ask her to stay home um, from work and be with me because it wasn't that I felt like anything would, that I, that I would do anything to myself, but I just felt this this extreme fear and sense of doom that I just did not know how to get through a day alone um, you know, I was, I was clock watching mm. the minutes until bedtime. And then I, then the anxiety would ramp up about pacing all night and not getting any sleep. So I was really fortunate to have her, but then also I have got the most amazing friends. And, um, you know, I have these two friends in particular that were messaging me every single day as basically a welfare check. And it was with no other purpose other than to make sure I was okay. And so I'm forever grateful for that to them because they, they really were such a lifeline to me um, through that pregnancy where I felt like I mm. could be just that they know me at my best and worst. And so I felt like I could just be my full negative self and tell them the ins and outs of the horrible things I was experiencing. And and that was kind of met with nothing but love and support. So, yeah, I was really fortunate to have that. And also, sorry, actually, that's another aspect, mm. my workplace. Um 
my boss and my colleagues, I was so fortunate that um, my boss is actually my friend prior prior to stepping into that um, leadership position. And so I was once again in a really safe space where I was able to be completely wholeheartedly honest Mm -hmm. without stigma or without worry of what I was going through. I could tell them what I was going through. But, you know, that was also quite challenging because I'm incredibly passionate about my job. I like to operate at a high level and I basically had to, um, I couldn't do my job really. And if it wasn't for the support of that, um, of her, of my boss and my colleagues who picked up the pieces and, you know, when I couldn't string a sentence together when writing reports, they would pick up the pieces and finish those reports for me. Um, Yeah, that was just Mm. a really another invaluable support that I still feel incredibly uh, it's still an incredible sore spot for me to have felt so crap at my job throughout that period of time. Um, but yeah, that was that was that, and then yeah, the support of my husband picking up the parenting pieces and doing everything. Wow, though, what an amazing support group, and it just highlights how important support is. And can you imagine though, Tani, how many women probably don't have that and do this? by themselves and like I see it when women have no idea that this is what's happening to them and why they feel so crap like Mm -hmm. it's just frightening that and you mentioned it to me that you even struggled to find resources and find things you know we all know that everyone googles you struggle to find stories um that were so in-depth like what you were going through that you just you felt alone and that sort of led you to why you're on the podcast today because you just were looking for someone to have shared a story so that you felt less alone. Um, I just am so grateful for you speaking out because your story is incredible and very eye-opening and like I I just actually am speechless speechless for a lot of the things that you have said like you've been speaking this I pretty much not even doing this recording <laughs> you're just you're running it probably rambling because I'm I'm I actually no but I'm just so speechless like it's just huge what you've gone through like I, you actually almost can't you can't put it into words yeah it's pretty pretty traumatic and I think kind of that was really the beginning and it's I mean it's it's incredibly hard to even articulate um now you know upon you know reflection it's really hard to articulate the dark depths of what women who have these kinds of conditions experience and that was one of the things that I did do is mm. I joined you know our hyperemesis support group online and at this point in time hyperemesis was kind of like the last of my worries and the last like I, it was still incredibly challenging and it was the core of most of my days that I couldn't function but yeah it was really um one of the lower things on my on my worry list at this point because yeah once I kind of got discharged from hospital um I was so um shaken by the experience um that I I would you know I was Mm. back at work at this point and working from home thank god but I would sit at my desk and I I was physically shaking from head to toe like a leaf just because my nervous system was so um overloaded and at this point I kind of got discharged from hospital and I'd been on this rest of it, um, which is a a um, over the counter drug for insomnia. But in hyperemesis, it can be used to 
lower the nausea and vomiting. And so I had been using it for the latter, but as a result, I had been getting knocked out every night, right? And you're not meant to use it that long. And so I came out of hospital and was so jittery. And after this whole experience, you know, pacing every single day, I I came out number one with severe sciatica from all of the movement, um, pacing, my hips, everything being out of whack. Mm. And that was, you know, really debilitating. And then I also um, couldn't sleep anymore. So I was riddled with, you know, anxiety, pain, and I started getting pretty severe insomnia. So how that kind of came about is I came out, got the insomnia, couldn't sleep, and I started feeling like, is this normal? Is this not normal? It would. It started off by being like I wouldn't get to sleep till 2 o'clock in the morning and then I'd sleep a few hours and then you're like, wow, that must just be a pregnancy mm. thing. But then it started ramping up and getting more and more severe where I wouldn't sleep for like, many de- like multiple days in a row three four days I would I wouldn't I don't think I would shut my eyes at all um and I was feeling incredible distress by how much I needed to rest and once again that was you know contributing to you know some anxiety and mental health um issues and so I once again was in touch with um doctor the perinatal well-being clinic and started to talk to them about how I couldn't get on top of this insomnia it was getting really severe and it was heavily impacting my life um and you know struggling to work struggling to do all those things and so I and I obviously couldn't take the rest of it anymore because they didn't know whether it was the rest of it or the medicopramide that caused my allergic reaction so at that point, they decided mm. to put me on metazapine, which is actually an antidepressant, but it causes, um, it's a sedative as well. So it, the reason I was going on it at that point was predominantly just for the insomnia. And so I spent a week on that and it did help me yeah. sleep, but I was experiencing such bad like heart palpitations, really bad anxiety. I'd wake up out of my sleep with my chest pumping so hard and just sweats that I really immediately after that one week made the decision that I needed to go off it. It was not going to work for me. Um, And in addition to that, I felt like I was living on another Mm. planet, like I was just a space cadet through the day. Um, And so I I went off that. You can't go off it immediately. So I I spent one week on it and then had to spend one week half dosing to get off it. Um, but yeah, after that, the sleep was still an issue and the anxiety was starting to really become an issue as well. So it was at that point that I kind of spoke with the psychiatrist, spoke with the psychologist. I had a bit of a team, um, happening and those appointments weekly were my lifeline. Like I needed to have those appointments weekly, um, as a checkpoint to kind of release all of the Mm. dark thoughts I was having and figure out some strategies on how to cope for the next day, the next week. How was I going to get through? And those appointments, um, you know, yeah. they kind of said to me, we think that actually you don't have like clinical insomnia issue. You've got anxiety and that's causing the insomnia. So that was where we kind of started having some discussions around, should I start looking at some uh, anti-anxiety, antidepressant medication and see if that will help with the insomnia and I was really reluctant at first because you know I'd gone down the rabbit hole of Dr Google the internet every possible chat room and Facebook group and forum possible and 
you know, there were some positive stories at this point of people that had said that it was the only way they could possibly survive through their pregnancy. Um, but then I had also, as I mentioned earlier, before we started recording, I had um, been searching for podcast episodes. I just wanted to listen to someone that had been through something as bad as what I was going through and did they medicate? And one of the worst ones I found, mm. she didn't medicate. And I just felt like I didn't know what to do. So in the end, we decided to start um, some anti-anxiety medication. And I think that that, I think I was on Zoloft on a pretty low dose of that. Um, but as a result of starting yeah. the Zoloft, the hyperemesis like doubled down and really kind of by that point I could barely eat and I was just crying trying to get a mouthful of food in my you know in my mouth every day I just desperately just wanted to eat something because you feel such severe starvation in your tummy like I'm so hungry but I can't let anything touch my lips um so yeah I started the Zoloft and concurrently uh the psychiatrist recommended at that point that I also commence some antipsychotics um, that was for the sleep. Can I ask you, Tani, why Why did you – I mean, I feel like there's such a stigma associated with taking medication for our mental health. Yeah. Like because, one, I think mainly we feel like a failure that why do I, why do I need some support with this? Like I should be able to handle this myself. But, two, you had never had any other mental health concerns prior to pregnancies. So this was a whole new ball game that you are now playing with. Um, but so many women feel like such a failure if they say, okay, yeah, I am going to start taking medication. Yeah. Um, how, what were some of the things that you were feeling in terms of why you were reluctant to take the medication? I was petrified for my baby. I had convinced myself that... I had taken so many medications by that point um, that were, you know, I can't remember the drug classes, but they, you know, it's not great. And I was Mm. just convinced that that in combination with the hyperemesis and having such a lack of food, lack of nutrient, lack of weight gain was going to lead to severe complications to my baby. I convinced myself Mm. that, you know, at that point, all I could think about was my baby. And I just thought that he was going to come out completely disabled or severely autistic or stillborn or just anything. I just convinced myself of all the worst case scenarios. And that was really what deterred me from taking the medication. Um, And that was probably part of the really negative things that I did do in the doctor Googling was looking up the side effects of what was going to happen to my baby. Yeah. Um, Rather than listening to the professionals who explained that, this was the better outcome for all of us and that sometimes the negative impacts of having such severe mental health um, or insomnia or all of those Mm. things can have a worse impact on the baby because we've got all that cortisol kind of floating around and, you know, causing, you know, distress to the baby as it is. So, yeah, that was kind of why I was really reluctant. Um, Yeah, I was just scared. I was scared. And I had also had that Mm. medication reaction and I was petrified that something like that was going to happen again. Yeah. And, yeah, they don't make you feel great. So, like, I started this 
anti-anxiety medication. I started the antipsychotics so that I could try and get some sleep at night, but they still kind of didn't really work. Like the insomnia was still highly prevalent. I was maybe getting three hours of sleep a night still, which was better than nothing. Um, but it, I just started becoming mm. really rigid about sleep. Like from the minute I got up in the morning to the minute I went to bed, like I was conscious of I wouldn't eat chocolate because it had bits of caffeine and I wouldn't have a tea. I wouldn't do anything. I it really rigidly started becoming pretty isolated because I had to have this wind down routine that's commenced at like 5 p.m. I'd lock, start locking myself in the room away from the family and I'd start doing yoga and meditations and sleep stories and I'd basically have my AirPods in my ears for eight hours overnight listening to sleep stories, just staring at the at the walls, feeling like I was absolutely losing my mind. Um, and, yeah, I felt like I was losing my mind. So it got to the point at then where I started, you know, I'd wake up feeling really groggy and out of sorts from the um, Seroquel, the antipsychotic, and I wanted to be on, that was causing me anxiety, mm. wanting to be on that for as short a period of time as possible. And so I would basically drop my son at school and similar to the beginning where I'd drop him at school and go get a drip casually on my way home, I would drop him at school, work for a few hours, have my lunch break. And on my lunch break, I'd be calling the mental health ward, like trying to see if I could check in that afternoon and, you know, see if they could sedate me essentially. That was, yeah, kind of the level that it got to how many weeks were you at that point I think that I would have been like over 20 by this point because I do know that um yeah when I got hospitalized it was about 15 um yeah and I think I'd had a few weeks pass probably five or six weeks pass by that point that Mm. yeah so I still had a long way to go I was about to say you still had (laughs) potentially another 20 plus weeks to go and already your body had been working so hard like you literally we know that we need sleep to function you really weren't getting any sleep your body had been jittering shaking without realizing it that uses so much energy then you put the hyperemesis onto it and you would have just still been feeling extremely crap from that I just can't even imagine how exhausted you felt yet so awake at the same time like it's a crazy concept to grasp that you were there was still this extreme exhaustion but your body just wouldn't switch off no matter how hard you tried and I can't imagine how hard that would have been to be like I'm literally trying everything yet nothing is working and helping me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, also at that point I was still working, right? Like I had all of this stuff going on. Um, How? Yeah, I mean. (laughs) How could you have possibly been working? I just don't understand. It was not, not cool. So I think that, you know, the only way I was able to continue working was because I was working from home. And I, you know, whilst the level of, you know, what I was able to produce had dropped to like 10% out of a hundred. I was still giving it my all. Like I was trying my best to do whatever I could to Mm. get the job done. Um, But yeah, I couldn't have continued working without, like I said, the support of my boss and colleagues to um, get me through. But yeah, it was, it was just incredibly challenging. I'd just sit at my, my desk all day. Um, You know, it was these things all I could think about, but I was just trying so hard to be dedicated and trying so hard to get my job done. Um, 
but yeah, I felt all of those things that you mentioned. Can I ask you, Tani, how were you feeling actually about your baby and, you know, doing this for him? Did you have any negative associations with actually being pregnant and growing him? Um, because, you know, so many women are just like, no, nah, I just don't, I don't, I don't even want to like get through it anymore. Like I can't do it. Yeah. I mean, probably about 17 weeks I was, I was laying in bed, you know, another day where my son came and wanted me to do things um, with him. And I had to keep saying, no, mommy can't, mommy can't. And, you know, I still carry incredible grief and shame and horrible negative feelings about that period of time not being able to be present for him um but yeah I had really negative Mm. feelings and it was at that point that I actually really strongly considered late term termination I thought I can't I can't do another single second of this and at that point I had so far to go like 23 weeks or something um I just I just couldn't Mm. fathom how I could possibly carry on um you know, across the board with the sickness, the mental health, the insomnia, I thought surely they're going to check me into the psych ward and I won't be able to leave. And so I had really negative feelings about carrying the baby. Um, And it was complex too, because I had wanted him so, so badly. Um, And my husband had said Mm. like, it was going to be bad. It was going to be bad. And so it was kind of just all of those horrible things had come to light and come true that we thought were going to happen. And then it was, you know, tenfold worse than that. So yeah, I felt really negative and I knew that there was something else that just wasn't feeling right about this pregnancy. And those were kind of the negative thoughts that I'd had that I mentioned before. I'd convinced myself he was going to have all these complications, that I was never going to be normal again. Mm. And it was to the point where I was kind of asking my mum, like, I normally like to do fun things, don't I? Like, I like to leave the house. Like, do you remember? I just couldn't remember who I was anymore. And so I was asking her all these questions. Mm. Like, I used to like to exercise or eat or, you know, just couldn't, I was so out of touch with who I was, um, you know, and also having a little one in the house, trying to protect him from that so much. I felt like I was doing my best to try and not be speaking openly about all of these horribly negative things that mummy was experiencing um because yeah I was crying a lot I couldn't eat all I could do with him is really lay on the couch or lay in bed constantly saying no so yeah it was really yeah really negative feelings about it to be honest Mm, I just can't even imagine how hard that would be because like you said you just wanted this so bad yet you knew exactly like what the depths of what you were going through and how hard it was going to be and how much willpower it was going to require from you to actually get through the next 20 plus weeks like insane absolutely like gobsmacking what you went through Tani like I just honestly I still am speechless but as your pregnancy progressed did it reach a point where you're like, okay, I've got this, like we're on the home stretch now? Like was there any positive to what you were going through? Honestly, no, not until he was out. Like there was no point in the pregnancy where I felt like I could mm. endure another day. It, I just knew that I had no choice. Like I'd gone past that point of potentially medical termination. I knew that I wanted to have this baby um and so I just 
I had kind of just resigned myself to the fact that all these things were going to be wrong and I just had to suck it up and wait for it to be over. And I do specifically remember at 34 weeks, um, which ironically is right when I went into labour, I had the day before I went into labour, I was crying and crying. I'd cancelled plans with my friend because I'd felt horrible. I mean, what more horrible than normal horrible. Um, and I remember mm. thinking, how am I going to get through the next six weeks? And I was hoping more than anything that I'd have a, an early labour. I just, at that point, I'd, I'd been telling my friends, like, at this point, mm. I mean, you know, now I know what Niku's like and, I, you know, I don't want to diminish people's experiences that I was hoping to get out of pregnancy by you know having an early baby but at that point I had said I just I'd rather have a Niku baby right now than be pregnant I just wanted the baby out I would do anything to get the baby out so yeah that's kind of where we mm. where we got to yeah I feel like you know given your circumstances like it's totally valid to have had thoughts like that like honestly you'd already endured so much you'd pushed through for so many weeks on end with really absolutely no relief so I'm not surprised that that's sort of where your mindset was at and you did so bloody amazing to even get to that point you mentioned before that you were taking some of those medications did any of those medications help with some of the feelings that you were experiencing I think in the end what did really help so the medic the anti-nausea medications I think did help somewhat with reducing the vomiting because once I'd gone off them the vomiting really ramped up um but they didn't really help with the nausea Mm. and the mental health medications um I think to some degree they did start to help a little bit but I think what helped most of all was therapy I was at weekly weekly sessions um with a psychologist I had been seeing a psychiatrist as well um and I had been seeking help from any kind of support system possible um I saw a hypnotist I saw a massage therapist naturopath I was seeing all these people on rotation as much as I could because they were just a lifeline so yeah I think the therapy helped most of all and yeah yeah I was gonna ask was were all these costs associated with all these appointments was there any were they all out of pocket costs or were they covered? Did you get that mental health plan from your GP only because you were so proactive and probably from your previous experience, you sort of knew what you could um, lean on for support. But for someone that's navigating this, that has never done it before and has absolutely no idea what's sort of occurring to them, um, just so they're aware of what they could sort of um, – reach out to for extra support yeah so I did um I did go to the GP and get the mental health care plan and that did reduce the cost of the psychologist Mm -hmm. appointments I think you get 10 every financial year perhaps and so or sorry I think you get it in blocks of six Mm. you get it in blocks of six and I think that it just reduces the cost yeah um so I was still paying significant amount out of pocket and you have to have that money up front right to pay and then you get the rebate um and then but everything else I was paying out of pocket um by that point I just it was survival so I just didn't even 
you know, it was meant to be the period of saving for a predominantly unpaid mat leave, but it really was an investment in actually surviving until the end. But one thing I did discover that I think will be incredibly helpful is when I was trying to check myself into the mental health ward, something I discovered through our private health insurance, and I don't know if this is across all different funds or if it was just um, ours. So we're with Bupa and one thing that I discovered through them is you can have a once in a lifetime um, throughout your policy uh, ability to upgrade your insurance to include mental health, um, you know, mental health services with no weight, with no um waiting period and so you can do that once ever and you can use it within 24 hours so I was trying to activate that so I could get checked into the private psych ward um and that was an incredibly helpful tool Mm. because yeah they said nobody knows about it but you can activate it basically once in a lifetime where you upgrade your policy you get access to these things and you don't have the waiting period is waived um and I found that incredibly helpful because I honestly I was so fragile at that point. I couldn't watch the news. I couldn't watch anything. I couldn't listen to anything negative um, that I couldn't Mm. fathom getting checked into a public mental health ward and being in there with people who are, you know, it's people are experiencing such a wide array of, of symptoms from, you know, substance abuse and schizophrenia. And I couldn't bear the thought of sharing a room and, you know, possibly worsening my own, situation so so yeah so that was a very helpful tool yeah I certainly know that we need to do so much better with our mental health of looking after women who um you know even prenatal anxiety um and depression because that doesn't get spoken about enough as you've realized but also postpartum like we just we don't do enough to support these parents at home really and I don't know how or when that's going to improve um but obviously people sharing their stories like you are with me today Tani that's going to help so many people out there that you just are going to make such a big positive impact hopefully on their lives when they're in these dark periods yeah and I can see um you know something that really was highlighted to me throughout that period was that I can see how easily people do fall through the cracks. Um, you know, if I didn't know how to advocate for myself mm-hmm. and even when I did have the tools and knowledge and the support team to advocate for myself and get access to whatever I could, it still wasn't enough. So one of the things I mentioned was trying to admit myself to the psych ward. It's actually incredibly challenging. I wasn't successful in doing it. The only way that I could admit myself was if I was presenting to ER as a danger to myself and that was, you know, yeah, it was, you know, just, yeah, that was kind of the only way I could admit myself um, to the private psych ward. So even though I was calling, you know, relentlessly getting referrals from the GP, I was trying to get it happening. Um, so, yeah, even with the tools and the knowledge and the skills to advocate for myself and know where I wanted to be to help myself, it was I was falling through the cracks and I could see how people could do that very easily and have, you know, really negative outcomes. So yeah, it was pretty, pretty bad. Mm. Yeah. I think also one of the things that everyone focuses on throughout that mental health period as well is the postpartum. Mm. Like they're so worried about your postpartum, but all I needed to do was get through the pregnancy. Um, And so, yeah, I was starting to be absolutely petrified about postpartum I just had these vivid images of myself rocking in the rocking chair in the corner and 
you know, when you get really bad sleep deprivation, you probably feel it after night shift where you, your head feels funny. And I just remember mm. thinking, having these vivid images of myself rocking in the chair, having these feelings and thinking that I, it was just going to be so unbearable and severe that I was just going to have this horrible journey postpartum. So I was petrified. Goodness. I just, yeah, I was going to say like so many, there's a few women that have come on my podcast already and they've shared how how hard it was like you said to get support where they're literally begging health professionals to help them and they still weren't successful and then they had to take it upon themselves or their support people to actually find access to help like that just baffles me and just makes me so mad because it just shouldn't be that hard and we all know that there's the significant impact of like mental health and that we still need to do so much more but it shouldn't be that hard for women that are really really struggling that much yeah agree um and then Tani one thing that I want to ask you is obviously seeking help the way that you did really um supported you on this journey but was is there any other advice um or recommendations that you would you know, every woman is so different and not always one thing is going to work for the other person. Mm -hmm. But is there any piece of advice that you could give to them, just like something that maybe you wanted to hear when you were going through what you were going through to help them? Oh, that's tough because I think everybody tells you it's going to be over, it's going to be okay. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's so hard to, so hard to articulate. I think the biggest and best thing that, you know, and it's hard to say this because I know that a lot of women don't have the support of close friends or whatever, but I think that one thing for Mm. me that I have felt incredibly lucky is that I feel no barriers in being completely honest in how I'm feeling. And so I think that was one of the best things is actually being honest with my friends, honest with my family, so that then that could be met with information or with empathy that was at that level rather than you know the positive things of you know Mm. yeah people expecting you to be positive or that it's all going to be over that the vomiting will stop or the mental health will stop and so I think that was probably the biggest thing that benefited me was just the you know transparency and honesty that I that I um that I gave around what I was going through yeah and Honestly, though, like, you know, fortunately, my mental health my whole life has been, you know, quite positive. But there has been times where, you know, I went through my first proper real heartbreak and that was really challenging for me and being such a positive person and then becoming so negative and feeling like I just was not who I like you were before. Yeah. Like, am I was I happy before or why? Why am I now this sad, sulky person? That's what made me so upset. But what helped me was people just listening Mm -hmm. and not me having to actually justify why I was feeling the way that I was, but not feeling judged by people. Um, That was really helpful for me. And I think it's important for people listening. If you know someone who's going through a tough time, um, often all they want is someone to listen, not to give advice. Yeah. And also I'll add to that is I did, like I said before, search um, hyperemesis support groups and I, you know, Mm. was probably a rambling mess telling too much of my personal information, but I just needed to get it out so that other people could see or help me help acknowledge that, yeah, actually you are going through a tough time. It's normal to feel so, you know, 
like you're in the dark depths of despair and and that was really helpful too because people had kind Mm. of related to some of the medications I'd been on some of my fears um so I guess I just tried to find like-minded or people that were experiencing the same suffering as me Mm. but often that's all that you all you want because you don't want to feel like you know you're the only one that's gone through this literally women they're always searching for similar stories just so they feel like okay I'm not alone I'm not going like mad this has happened to someone else yeah and you get sick of talking about it right like I was sick of the fact that it wasn't over not because I didn't want to experience Mm. it anymore but because I was sick of people asking me how I am and and me having nothing good to say and you know it was it got to the point where one of the school mums asked me one day and I just said look I'm really sorry I've got nothing positive to say and I just couldn't even hold a conversation. And so, yeah, you get sick of talking about it, sick of having nothing positive to say when it is not who you are at your core, you know? Mm, Yeah, so hard. But you once again did such an amazing job. Like it would be so hard for you to reflect on this now because it was such a traumatic period of your life and really probably changed um, a bit of the perception that you have about yourself but I hope that you can look back on it and even probably after listening to this and really reflect and say wow like how strong am I to have been able to get through this but not only that be able to share it and speak about it so openly to help others like it's you're amazing thank you obviously you know after everything that you went through obviously you mentioned that you went into preterm labor at 34 weeks probably your body just realizing hey I can't do it anymore like we need to meet this baby um what did that look like for you so um so I went into labor at home I was kind of expecting the pop gush waters feeling that I had with my last baby but actually I was just in bed and I felt like my undies were unusually wet and my son didn't want to sleep beside me anymore because he thought that I was going to wee myself at any point in time so yeah I kind of just started getting a bit of wet undies got up went to the bathroom let my hand go and waters kind of went everywhere it was like six o'clock in the morning. So I, my husband was in the shower and I was like, I'm just going to jump in the shower and then we need to go to hospital. Um, for us, the hospital is an hour away. Mm. So we really needed to go like with a preemie baby on board. We just um, yeah, needed to bail basically immediately. Um, at that point, I didn't really know if they were going to let me yeah. actually have him or if they were going to try and keep him in. So they put me straight in birth suite and tried to stop the labour. Then... Um, they decided to induce me and then, you know, go figure from natural labour to it being stopped to an induction. The baby was in distress, so I ended up having an emergency C-section. Um, and, yeah, at that point I was feeling, like, pretty positive. Like, they they kind of bring a, a NICU obstetrics team into you when you're in labour preterm and at that point they don't know if anything's happening with mm. the baby that's positive or negative, but they kind of bring them in and prepare you and kind of say you're not going to get to hold your baby we're going to take your baby you're going to have a minimum of two weeks stay in Niku but you need to be prepared for that to be six or eight weeks by the time your due date you know they say kind of your due date Mm. is the the guide for when you'll be able to get out and at that point I kind of hadn't really sunk in I you know all I could think of was the logistical challenge of having a c-section and not being able to drive and having another child and being an hour away from hospital and you know, so that was a bit um, 
yeah, a bit upsetting, but I just still thought like, oh, well, my baby's fine. Like, thank God I'm not going to be pregnant anymore. And so when he came out, he was like mm. really small, but he was breathing on his own. And they started, I started feeling, I was feeling so positive at that point because all I knew was I had an early baby. He was a little bit small, but everything was otherwise fine. And it was kind of like they were, yeah. they were as they were pulling my placenta out, they started like making a few weird comments and um, were asking me a few things about if I'd had XYZ condition, preeclampsia or other kinds of things going on and they decided to send my placenta away for testing um and yeah at that point I kind of I'd gone back to my room obviously it takes ages for them to stitch you up you don't know that right um so it was getting stitched up and I ended up being separated from Mark and my husband and Ziggy for like five hours and I was still positive all I thought was I had like an early baby who was small he was 1.6 kilos um and Mm. yeah and so I went back to my room and at that point it was like 10 11 o'clock at night and I was like can someone get my husband or can I see my baby like I was completely separated um and they finally got Mark and Mark came in and he was just you know so exhausted so distressed and what I didn't know had happened whilst I'd been getting stitched up was that um Ziggy had stopped breathing needed to be resuscitated and had been put on CPAP in the NICU. Um, so they finally wheeled my bed in, got to see him, which was great. Still not really feeling the overwhelm of NICU at that point. I just thought he's small, he's healthy, he's fine. We'll be out of here in the two weeks. I just need to get through it. Um, mm. And, yeah, kind of from there things did go a little bit um, awry. Uh, I had growth restriction Obviously, he was so small, he should have been over two kilos by that point. Um, and the results from my placenta mm. started coming back in and it was basically, you know, riddled with all sorts of conditions and diseases. It was dying off and losing oxygen. And so they had said that, you know, if I'd gone full term, he potentially would have been a stillborn um, and or mm. in perinatal death due to clotting. So they kind of were laying down all this information and at the same time, um, you know, Ziggy was kind of not crying, like not making any sounds whatsoever. He was just like in the incubators, dead silent. And it kind of started feeling like, is that normal? Like what's going on? And then we got the newborn screening results back, which, um, you know, I mentioned this offline before, but that's the newborn screen that everyone can get. Oh, that it's just standard, but a lot of people can actually say no to to having it. And so this was a direct result of having the newborn screen. Mm. Um, they kind of said, we think he's been born without a thyroid. I'm quickly going to just jump in yeah. and say what, what the newborn screen test is yeah. in case people are yeah, like, yeah. what is it? Um, basically the newborn screen test, people know it as a newborn screen test, NST or the newborn blood spot test. Basically it's a routine test that we offer all babies um, between 48 and 72 hours of age and it tests for things like congenital hypothyroidism um, or your amino acid disorders. It's more of like your higher end conditions and normally we'd say hey if you don't if you don't hear anything back from it it's normal um but that's not always the case 
sometimes you might hear back if we need a repeat sample or things like that. Um, but sorry, Tani, back to you. And that's exactly what happened to us. Like they kind of came to us and said, we've been getting these abnormal results. Um, at that point, his thyroid reading was so off the charts that they thought it was something wrong with the machine. Um, the machine wasn't reading the results because it was like 1,068 or something and it should be like five. And so they um, they kept taking bloods, kept doing the tests. And at that point they kind of said to us, oh, did anyone tell you we think he's been born without a thyroid? And so that's kind of when everything kind of came crumbling down rather than having just a small healthy baby that was early. We started to have a baby that had stuff mm. going on that was unclear how, you know, how it was going to pan out or how, you know, what the outcomes were. And so, you know, mm. when you're in NICU, everything's exacerbated, emotions are high, it's, you know, doom and gloom when you hear news like that. But the reality is it's actually okay if it's picked up in that newborn screen and medicated. And so um, for Ziggy, he immediately started thyroxine. He is going to be on that for life, every day for life. Um, and, yeah, he underwent, like, the nuclear testing, all of the things and we kind of spent, I think, three weeks in Niku going through all of the motions, trying to get him out of there, um, all of the, you know, the things that go with yep. that, the cycle of pumping and milk, milk tube feeding and trying to get him on the boobie and finally, Everything. yeah, finally we kind of got to a point where he wasn't gaining weight very fast, I think because of his thyroid issue, um, but being my second baby, knowing how to advocate for myself, I basically said to them, no, I, I want to go home. Like if he's fine, we've got him on the medication mm. and the only reason we're staying here is because he's underweight. I said, I want to go home and be with my family and I'm happy to come here every second day and get him weighed if I need to. Um, so they eventually, finally let us go. Um, so, yeah, I brought home a 1.8 kilo mm. little weenie dot of a baby and, um, yeah. Yeah. And he's healthy and happy now, and he's in the he's <laughs> he's in the screen. <laughs> yes, he is. Hey, darling. So yeah, he um, but congenital hyperthyroidism coming home with that was you know we were a bit fearful at the beginning because the complications of that are if it's not picked up mm. that growth and development can decline, um, and or it can lead to you know physical and mental um, disability. Yeah. But we were very fortunate to have had access to such great care um and the newborn screen and now he's medicated he gets blood tests every four weeks he sees a pediatrician and he sees a uh, pediatric endocrinologist and he's totally fine and healthy he's still been a bit slow to gain weight um mm. but other than that everything's totally fine which is such a relief yeah for you what a journey roller coaster <laughs> Yeah, especially with like everything that you were feeling about how he was going to be born um, with any issues and he is super happy and healthy now. Yeah. And I think also the other thing I'll mention is after postpartum, my mental health immediately returned to normal. I was immediately myself the minute the baby was out. And so it really was just the pregnancy for me. And whilst I do experience some of those, you know, mild and, and you know, common anxious thoughts that every parent I think gets um yeah those horrible feelings I thought that I was never going to return to normal I was immediately back to normal mm. so it was you know really just such a relief that that finally finally happened and we could not be more grateful to have him here now I think so yeah 
Wow. You are amazing. Um, I am just so glad that you're doing okay today and you really are so positive and happy as a person and I've only been speaking to you for the last like hour and a half but Tani I'm so grateful for you coming on and sharing your story with me today. Like I've said throughout the episode it's going to help a lot of people and you know there are some tough heavy conversations within this episode but I think it's so important to share because there are a lot of women that suffer from hyperemesis and just not even hyperemesis but mental health um, in pregnancy and also postpartum so just hearing someone else's experience and how they got through it and the strategies that they used and the support that they used to get through it um, you're going to help so many people so thank you thank you so much you are so welcome I feel like everyone listening today you probably noticed that my voice sounds really awful and it's just hanging on for the rest of the episode but Tani you spoke so well um you should be so proud of yourself I hope that you can really reflect upon this episode and see how incredible you are because I'm sure that many people listening will just be shocked about how how the heck you even just got through speaking about that so thank you you should be so proud of yourself thank you so appreciate it all right bye. bye Thank you for listening to today's episode of MIDI. Your support means the absolute world to me. So if you loved this episode and want to stay up to date with the latest interviews and midwifery education, please hit the subscribe button and leave a five-star review. For further information about this episode, please check the show notes below. If you wish to share your pregnancy and motherhood experience, you can get in touch with me by emailing hello at themidisociety.com.au and find us on Instagram at at themidisociety or at Monique underscore Maitland. I cannot wait for you to join me next week. I'll be talking all things flap chat. Was that my hands or my flaps? I'll let you decide. In the meantime, I hope you have an amazing week. And remember, you're doing the best you can. Oh,